Good morning, church family. Happy Sabbath. If you are visiting with us this morning, you may not be aware that uh, our children's divisions uh, just opened up. So um, that's Babyland, Kindergarten, and the Primary Divisions. So your kids can go there and be part of uh, supervised teaching activities while you stay here and we have a conversation. So uh, it's, it's a wonderful day to be together. And uh, I'm excited you're here, because we are in the middle of a series called Money Talks. We're having open and honest conversation about cold, hard cash, about money. So, uh, this coming Monday, uh, as far as national holidays go, this coming Monday is not a very popular one, but everyone knows what it is, right? Everybody, at the same time, it is my birthday. Oh, no, it's not my birthday. It's tax day. That's right, April 15th. A day that is circled on everyone's calendar because it's the day that the tax man cometh, as they say. In this country, uh, tax is a certainty. In fact, one of the uh, more famous phrases, oh, you can hold, hold on to that. I'm not ready for that yet. Thank you. There you go. Uh, one of the most common phrases we know or well-known phrases is that there are only two things that are certain in life, death and Taxes, that's right. Taxes make up a significant uh, part of our history. In fact, it was taxation that finally riled us up enough to create our own country. Uh, Boston Tea Party, if you're a history buff, American history buff, taxation without representation, we would stand for it. So taxes is what actually uh, uh, was the catalyst for the birth of this nation. They form a significant part of our culture. In, in, in California, we live in a community and in a state that has one of the highest tax rates in the country. You're a part of that. We are both beneficiaries of what it does as well as, um, I don't know how we would call it, maybe uh, under the curse. <laughs> victims, that's a good one. Yeah, both beneficiaries and victims of the tax code and the tax rates here in California. In fact, uh, one of the highest tax rates, 13.3 in California alone, income taxes, is pretty high. Uh, that's why people are moving to Oregon, Washington, places like that where the tax rates are either zero or, or very small. Taxes, taxes. Today we're talking about taxes and tithes. Taxes. Just a few tidbits about taxes, in case you did not know. <clears throat> Uh, in uh, 2011, and uh, there's a similar figure for 2012, uh, there will be 143 million individual tax returns filed. That doesn't include corporations, trusts, etc., but just individuals like, like you and your family. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of tax situations. If you do your own taxes, you know how complicated it is. In fact, the tax code, they say, is 10 times bigger than the Bible. It's like a book this big, very confusing. But there's all kinds of statuses. You can, um, you can file married filing jointly. You know that one? MFG or JMFJ. Uh, you can be a single taxpayer. You can be married filing separately. Uh, you can file head of household. There's all kinds of things, all kinds of uh, little codes and, and complications, um, taxes. 143.6 million individual tax returns. And how much money do you think, anybody know or have a guess, the government takes in through, uh, uh, through taxes? Anyone? Take a guess? No one? No one wants to venture to guess? Okay, well, I'll help you. Uh, through individual tax returns in 2011, the government took in $1.3 trillion. 
That's just, that's just from you and me. When you add in corporations, businesses, trusts, etc., the government takes in $2.5 trillion in taxes. $2.5 trillion. That sounds like a lot of money. Obviously, you've been listening, though. You've been listening to uh, you know, Fox News or CNN or whatever, and you know that we are in a huge deficit and that their national debt is much bigger than what we take in. And so you, you understand the situation we live in a country. We're spending more than we're taking in. Nevertheless, for the moment, let's talk about taxes. 2.5 trillion taxes. Of that, how much do you think the government will give back in tax refunds? Anyone? 189 billion dollars. Sounds like a lot. But 2.5 trillion takes in one 189 billion goes back. The average tax return for your average American will be how much? Huh? 2000? Uh, average tax return $2716. That's the average tax return for uh, individual uh, tax returns that are sent in. And you probably either um, are excited about getting your tax return back or know people who are counting on that little check that comes in and so they can go out and do what? Um, I don't know, spend it. Probably, you know, um, waiting for the tax return so you can get a nice big screen TV that comes in handy. Uh, or maybe pay off some debts in this down, downturn economy. People have used their tax returns to kind of offset some of their, some of their challenges. If you are getting $2,716, you should check your tax situation. You're giving the government way too much money. So, so check that out. Uh, <clears throat> uh, but, but that's a lot of money either going in and going out. You're never going to believe, uh, I read this just yesterday, uh, what um, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg's tax bill will be for this year. Anybody want to take a guess? Do you, know, you guys know what Facebook is, right? Everybody knows what Facebook is? Uh, don't go like, what? I know you do. You have a Facebook page. And, um, and you know who Mark Zuckerberg is because you've probably heard about him. Uh, this past year, Facebook finally released its shares on the stock market and um, so on and so forth. It was a big hubbub earlier this past year. And uh, he cashed in some of his stock options. So guess how much they estimate his tax bill is going to be? Anyone? Zero? That would be nice, huh? That would be good. So we could, like, uh, hate him even more. But no, no. His uh, tax burden, because he is at the highest t- tax rate for the federal government, that's 35%, plus 13.3% for California, a whopping 48.3% overall, his tax burden for this next year will be $1.1 billion. So by next Monday, he's having to write a nice check for $1.1 billion. That's a lot of money, right? For a single taxpayer. But that's what happens. You know, you get rich, more money, more problems. That's right. So, uh, in this conversation about taxes, you probably have an idea about how much you make. And, and if you're like me, the first time I got my first paycheck, I was so excited. They told me, this is how much I'm going to make an hour. And I would calculate, I worked these many hours. But when I got my check, it was significantly smaller than what I had envisioned. And ever since then, even until now, when the check comes in on the little stub and you look at it and you say, okay, I made this much. And wait, wait where did this, what, where's that going? And there's this deduction, there's, of course, the federal tax, then there's Social Security tax, FICA this and FICA that and SDI this. And all, before you know it, it's like it's all vanishing. 
taxes. And every time we look at that, you say to ourselves, why, why, why do we have to, why does the government take this so much money? Because you think you made this much, but in reality, you're only bringing home maybe two-thirds, maybe one-half. Taxes, taxes. Sometimes you've probably wondered yourself, and if you haven't paid your taxes yet this year, or if you're scared, uh, you'll be in the, uh, <clears throat> the uh, adrenaline rush of next Monday with those of us who like adrenaline, and uh, we're excited, and I don't know if you've ever done that, you know, pulled up to the post office at midnight, April 15, and handed your stuff in just to challenge yourself. Um, you know, the adrenaline rush, they say sometimes people wait to pay at the last minute because they're afraid of how much they're going to owe. They're afraid they didn't withhold enough or their tax situation changed. So they're waiting to the last minute to find out how much they're going to owe. And in that conversation, in this climate, in this situation, maybe when you go see your tax attorney or when you file it, when you go to H&R Block, you've probably asked yourself, should we even pay taxes? Now, if you're a good American citizen, you know how it's part of our history and how it makes things go. But you've probably asked yourself, should we pay that much in taxes? Should we even pay taxes? taxes. Well, you know, they asked Jesus the same question, and let's see what he's got to say as an answer. Open your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 12, verse 17. We are in Mark, chapter 12, verse 17. There should be a Bible in a pew right in front of you. New Testament, uh, second book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark. In Mark, uh, chapter 12, uh, uh, there was a group of people gathered around Jesus, and they asked him this specific question, and we want to take a look to see what Jesus has to say in response and see if that can't help us in our conversation about money today. <clears throat> Bible says here, chapter 12, follow along with me, verse 13. Uh, later, uh, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him with his words. The, chapter 12, verse 13. And they came up to Jesus and they said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. Whenever somebody comes up to you and starts up with some nice compliments, watch out. Watch out. If your wife says to you, Honey, you're looking good today. Look out. You're going to be mowing the lawn later. Um, they said, Jesus, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men. You don't care uh, what they think or, or you don't pay attention to who they are, but you teach uh, the right way according to God. And, th and then they said, after they try to butter him up, they say, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? It's a fair question. Should we pay or shouldn't we? They come up to Jesus and they try to, you know, uh, uh, like I said, uh, throw in a few compliments and then they lower this question. Should we pay or should we? Now, you know, because I just read that part of the text, they were sent to ask this question to try to trap him. The author tells us that. But why would it be a trap? In our day, in our conversation, if someone like myself said to you, should we pay taxes, would that be a trick question? Would that be a... Uh, um, something that would define who you are? No, because we don't have a choice, do we? In the country with where we live, you don't pay taxes, they'll come and get them. Uh, eventually, they'll catch on to you. Uh, you. In fact, your employer just takes it anyway without, uh, you know, without you actually saying, yes, I want to pay taxes. You can say how much to withhold, but, the, but your employer will actually take it anyway. Do you know that there's billions of dollars, I read for 2009, $917 billion unclaimed um, from people who just didn't file their tax returns and government is holding on to the money and saying thank you very much. Um, we don't have a choice. We have to pay taxes. In Jesus' day, 
they were living in, a, living in a very similar situation. So when this question is asked, it's asked to try to create uh, a position, a political position, position from Jesus. They're asking for Jesus to state a political position. So they say, Jesus, we know your man integrity. We know you know the right thing to do. So what do you say? Should we pay taxes or shouldn't we? Now, just so you understand the climate in the situation, I'm going to give you a little bit of a backdrop. Uh, I've been reading a wonderful book called um, Who Is This Man by John Ortberg. And um, in it, he talks about the situation, the political climate that Jesus was in. I'd like to tell you a little bit about it um, uh, that I found here. Um, there were different people groups in Jesus' day. In fact, Jesus was a Jew. He lived in the Jewish community. But even amongst the Jews, there were several different uh, factions. Uh, in modern day speak, you could probably think of some as Democrats, Republicans, and there were some Tea Party people in there. There were at least three or four major different groups in, as far as their political um, uh, philosophies. Uh, number one, there were the Zealots. You probably heard that word or heard it told in a story. A zealot, as the word is now defined, was somebody who was eager for change. See, the Jews in Jerusalem lived under Roman occupation. The Roman Empire had spread during Jesus' time, and it was a large empire, and the Jews were living essentially under their domination. So the Roman Empire governed the Jewish territory. Now, the Jews had their own sub-governments and their own laws, but they still had to hold to Roman law. And the Roman emperor was called Caesar. Caesar. Caesar was the Roman emperor, the Roman king, and, 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 the, and the one who laid down the law for the entire empire, the entire kingdom. And his laws also were uh, superimposed upon the Jews. Now, the Jews didn't like that. Obviously, nobody really does. Um, that's why we eventually, you know, got booted the British out of here because we don't like someone else ruling over us. But they were not in a position to free themselves. But the zealots, this particular people group, were actually interested in creating revolution. In fact, they were so interested in creating a revolution that they would go to whatever means necessary to try to kick the Romans out. They were interested in change even if it required violence, military might, even if it required uh, uh, being um, confrontational, that's what they were called zealots. So the zealots' philosophy uh, was um, not to pay taxes. In fact, to them, to even carry a Roman coin was like treason. Uh, was like saying, if you carry a Roman coin, it was like saying you were giving your allegiance to Rome. So the zealots wanted to revolt. That was their position. Uh, the Essenes, another people group within the Jews, were a little bit different in their political philosophy. They felt that everything was corrupt. Roman society, even mainstream Jewish society was corrupt. And the only way to live out truly uh, a spiritual life was to withdraw to kind of run away from life, to go and hide in their religious communities and not get involved in the fray. Just, just uh, run and, and hide. Something like a monastic lifestyle where you could run away from, from the problem situations, just not participate and try to avoid uh, having to deal with this conversation. And then there were the Sadducees, a name you're probably more familiar with. The Sadducees were more pragmatic. 
they believed in making things work and working things to their advantage. So they subscribed to a philosophy that said if you can't beat them, join them. So the Sadducees would cooperate with the Roman Empire. In fact, the Sadducees were the ones that got all the uh, government posts from the Roman Empire because they would cooperate. They were the ones who turned out to be tax collectors amongst the Jews to send money to the Roman Empire. And because of that, they were not very well liked. So each of these people groups had a specific point of view that they felt was correct. So when this conversation comes to Jesus... These three people groups are waiting to see what his reply is. Consider, Jesus, should we pay taxes? What do you say? If Jesus says, yes, we should pay taxes, the zealots say, aha, you're, you know, uh, uh, you're, uh, you committed treason. You're paying your allegiance to Rome. You are not a true prophet. You can't possibly anoint by God. We've got you. If Jesus says, um, Yes, we should get involved. We should have this conversation. The Essenes would say, this is proof that you're not a spiritual man. You're not a really, uh, you haven't truly experienced the, the, the marvelous power of God. You're not spiritual enough. This is proof. And the zealots would say, uh, if Jesus said, uh, let's pay taxes, they would say, uh, they would side, side uh, I'm sorry, the Sadducees would side with the zealots. If Jesus said, let's not pay taxes, the Sadducees would say, aha, you're committing treason against Rome, so we should have you killed. So everyone had an angle on this question. Should we pay taxes or should we not? So they're trying to get Jesus to, to ex express a political position, except that Jesus disagreed with all three of them. So here's what Jesus says. Should we pay taxes or not? Jesus, verses uh, 15, chapter 12. Jesus says, he knows, he knows their hypocrisy and says, why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him the coin and he asked, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? And they replied, Caesar's. A Roman coin would have had the face of Caesar on it and an inscription that said, Divi Filius, son of God. The Roman emperor considered himself the son of God, God's entity on earth, and thus powerful enough to declare what's what amongst his subjects. So his coin would have his picture, and it would say, Divi Filius, son of God. So Jesus says, bring me a coin. Let me see whose face is on it. And I say, whose is this? You remember the story. You probably heard these words before. And they said, it's Caesar. Then Jesus turned to them, and he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's? You've heard that expression before, right? But what does that mean? Okay, so let's break it down. The zealots say revolt, right? Let's, let's rise up and overthrow this kingdom. But if you listen to what Jesus says, he actually does not propose anarchy or revolution. He's never said that. In fact, you recall some of these expressions from Jesus. Jesus said, if they force you to walk a mile, go with them Two miles. That was a direct response to one of the Roman laws. Roman laws had it that if there was a Roman soldier who wanted you to carry something for him, they could force you under Roman law to walk a mile. But Jesus says, if the Roman law requires you to go one mile, go two. Roman law says that if a Roman soldier could, needed something from you, he could ask for your coat, and, and, he, and you, would give it, you had to give it to him. And Jesus says, if they ask you for your coat, give them that. And give him your shirt, too. Give him everything. 
Roman law says that they could, you know, take out their frustrations on you. Jesus says, if they do, required by law, turn the other cheek. See? So when Jesus, when the, uh, when the zealots say, should we revolt? Jesus says, no, no, no. Not only should you follow the rules, you should do better than that. You should do better than that. The Essenes said we should withdraw. We should just get away from society. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus, in fact, makes his political stance one of touching society. You know this because we've talked about it. Jesus would touch lepers and heal them, whereas the Essenes would run away and avoid. Jesus heard the plight of the centurions, Roman guards, and blessed them. In fact, uh, had miracles happen uh, for the Roman soldiers, whereas the Essenes would run away. So as they would withdraw, Jesus says the kingdom of God comes through embracing what's in front of you. It's both in the present and the future. It's both spiritual, but it's also physical. It is here. Last, the Sadducees would say we should cooperate with the Romans. We should uh, take advantage of the situation. But Jesus says to them, not so. Give to God what is God's and to Caesar what is Caesar's. Jesus says, I will not pay my allegiance to Caesar. I will obey his rules. He would not ignore Caesar, but he would not call him son of God. He would not, in fact, pay his homage to him. John Orberg says that this, this moment and this phrase sets the tone for how the world will change after Jesus says, give to God, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. John Orberg says, this is the first time that someone actually made the statement, this implication that there were some things in the world that did not belong to Caesar. He goes on to say, the right to dictate worship did not belong to Caesar. The claim to ultimate allegiance did not belong to Caesar. The valuation of human worth did not belong to Caesar. The religious conscience of a single powerless Israelite did not belong to Caesar. The title Lord did not belong to Caesar. Fascinating. Jesus says in this world, taxes, laws, civic duty, it's part of the religious experience. But that is in the kingdom of Caesar. And yet there is another kingdom, the kingdom of God. And you need to give God what belongs to him. Caesar must get his due, but lordship belongs to God. Fascinating. Because Jesus is that one, embracing and engaging with society, dealing with the situation, but refusing to be defined by the culture of the day. Last week we talked about how uh, money can define you. The world wants to define you by, by money, how much wealth you have, how much you possess. But Jesus says, not so. For you, treasure should not be here, but there. Give to God what is God's. Give to Caesar what belongs to him, but to God what is God's. And so he begins a revolution of sorts, but not a political one, a spiritual one. One that helps us understand that we belong, yes, to this kingdom, the kingdom of the United States, you are a citizen, you have civic duties, but you are also member and part of a much higher kingdom, the kingdom of God. And in that kingdom, he rules, and he is Lord, the only one worthy to be called so, and the only one who has the right to determine the value of your worth. It is not how much money you make, it is not how much money you pay in taxes, it's the fact that God gave his son in exchange for you. 
That's what makes the difference. In the kingdom of God, the rules and the policies are different because God is a king of benevolence, not a dictator. God is a king of benevolence. And in this context, we need to talk briefly about how money works. I want to give you a quick snapshot. Okay, hit it. Quick snapshot. In, in, the, in our church community, uh, we uh, give to God. I mean, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. We pay taxes, but we also give honor and glory to God through our tithes and our offerings. A system begun in, uh, in, in, in Bible times by God himself. And second service, we're going to uncover this a little bit more. But I want to give you a quick a glimpse. Uh, in 2012, the total tithe for the Southeastern California Conference. This is a group of churches that we belong to here in uh, San Diego, uh, Inland Empire, etc. Total tithe was $48 million, almost $49 million. There's 71,000 members in our in group of churches together. Of that 40, close to 49 million, the first 23% go on to what's called the World Church, the General Conference. That means it goes to things like the Pacific Union, the North American Division, uh, the different divisions without, throughout the world, and eventually goes up to the GC. We are part of a worldwide organization. And every time you put a dollar in the tithing envelope, it goes to bless us locally and on and on throughout the end of the world. So uh, the first 11.4 million goes on up to the other churches. And what's left in Southeastern California is 37.5 million. I want to be open and honest about how your money is spent. Next slide, please. Of that uh, 37.5 million, I don't expect you to read that, but I'll read it for you. The first 47% goes to pay for pastor salaries, 17.6 million a year roughly. There are 200 pastors full-time and part-time in this region. We're one of the largest conferences. In fact, we're bigger than some unions. We employ a lot of pastors. The bulk of the money that you give when you put in money in the tithe envelope and label it tithe goes to pay for pastor salaries uh, and pastors who pastor churches. This is a biblical mandate because in the Old Testament, God established the system of tithes to be uh, the inheritance or the pay or the way that the Levites, um, the, the, the priests would make their living. So that's how it works. The next biggest chunk, 6.1 million, goes towards Christian education, Adventist education. Uh, this supports the San Diego Academy as well as all the other academies in our region, and it helps to pay for teacher salaries like the, several of the teachers that uh, work, I mean, that are part of our church community here. The next bunch, 4.9, goes to retirement for all these pastors that have worked over the years in the pension plan. Next a little bit, 3.9, pays for administration of the conference. We have a large um, uh, team of administrators that help to do all kinds of things. Someday you can ask me and I'll explain what that is. The next bunch is 3.1 for different departments like the Sabbath school department, youth ministry, and lots of different ministries that the conference does. I know you're squinting. I'll just read it for you. And uh, about a million comes back to local churches through grants, um, uh, funds that come back for vacation Bible school, scholarships for different things like Pine Street Ranch, etc. And about half a million goes directly to Pine Street Ranch, which is our local Christian camp, to support the activities thereof. Okay, so that's what happens when you put in a, a, a dollar in the envelope, all right? Uh, Jesus says, give to God what is God's, and God says, a tenth, a tenth of your increase. This is from the Old Testament. God says, belongs to me. Return your tithes and offerings. This is nothing new. I know you know this before, and this is what happens when you go. Okay, next slide, please. Beyond that, uh, information. For us at the Bonita Church, last year we gave $456,000. Praise God, we have been blessed. This church has been generous in their giving, and we were able to send this tithe on up um, to uh, the conference and on to Bless the World Church, 456000 that, That's amazing. Um, and then the church also gives, you also give 
for our local church budget, our average monthly giving is close to $16,000 every month. That's not tithe. When you put in your envelope tithe, all that money leaves our church and goes on up. But when you put it church budget, you see that next line, whether it's for the uh, you know, different projects locally, but if you put a church budget, that money stays here, and it helps to bless our particular church community, close to 16000 Let me break that down, how that works. Next slide, please. And I know I'm going fast. Um, the first biggest chunk that we take is uh, for, um, well, next biggest chunk is, is San Diego Academy subsidy. We, with, along with the other churches in San Diego, help to support San Diego Academy. We give uh, almost 3500 directly to support the academy, which was called subsidy. Uh, we also give tuition assistance. That's for our students who are going there who need financial assistance. We also send in money. So the biggest chunk of our monthly budget goes to support Christian education. If you have kids and, um, and uh, you're considering where to take them to school, know that we already support Adventist education. We believe in that, and you should take advantage of that. Uh, we also have employees. We have secretary, ministries coordinator, people that work in our custodial department. We have uh, people that uh, do repairs for us. And we are hopefully hiring on a couple more uh, to assist us in different ministers. We want to grow this church, and you grow by adding workers to the field. And that's our next biggest expense. We spend $1,200 in office expenses, copier, printing, ink, all that good stuff. A nurture ministry is $2,300. This includes men's ministries, women's ministries, Sabbath school divisions, uh, the fellowship, the food that's in the lobby, all that kind of good stuff. The physical plant, $2,300 a month, uh, thereabouts. That includes upkeep, repairs, um, cleaning, uh, lots of different things that go because this is an aging building and there's constant needs. We try to buy new equipment, which may be at times a guitar here, a music stand there, computer equipment. So that's what the average that we spend. And we're blessed. We don't pay a whole lot of electricity or, uh, or gas, etc. So this is how it breaks down. So what I want you to understand is in the kingdom of God, uh, <clears throat> your generosity is what continues to further the work of God. So in the same way that you pay taxes to support our country, giving tithes and offerings helps to support the worldwide work of the Adventist Church as well as the local work. A lot of times people don't know the difference between tithes and offerings. But the tithe is God's designed inheritance for the priests, the Levites. The offering is God's design for blessing his house. So the offering is what stays local. The tithe continues to go up to pay for people like myself and other pastors employed throughout the world. So there's a good... uh, Simple picture. If you want to know more information, check out the website, sec.avenist.org, and uh, you will f- you'll find an article called Follow the Money, which is where I got all these numbers for, from, and you can read about that there, how they do it. If you want to know how we handle money, we have board meetings every uh, second Tuesday of every other month. <laughs> we had one just this past Tuesday, and uh, they're open. You can come and sit in as we uh, discuss and look at our financial documents. We want to be as transparent as possible because we know that you are trusting us to handle uh, the donations that you give, and we want to make sure that you understand how we use it. This is how we do it. So when it's all said and done, this is what you need to know. God has blessed us. We learned last week, number one, that everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. It is God who gives us the ability to produce wealth. And then God says, to create a system of trust between us, I'll give you this system, tithes and offerings. Return to me the first fruits of portion. And what I will do with that, God says, is I will bless the Levites, pastors, and I will provide food for my house, offering. This is a system that God has provided for us. And when we say there are things that do not belong to Caesar, that is what we're saying. Yes, I do pay my taxes. I fulfill my civic duty. 
But I have a higher allegiance to my God, to his kingdom, to the ministry of his word, to the sharing of his gospel. And God has called us to that.